Welcome to Poetry Spotlight, presented by the Ohio Poetry Association. I am your host, Jeremy Jusek, and with us today are several reps from Literary Youngstown. Today we have Julio Valentin, R.W. Franklin, Barbara Marie Minnie, Pam Anderson, and Karen Schubert. And we're going we're gonna to start this off kind of like the Greenfield Poets episode, so I'm going to introduce people one at a time, and we're going to talk about the literary festival it's going to be happening in another month and a half two months ah! <laughs> all right so first up we have rw franklin rw lives in northeast ohio with with her spoiled cat gus loyal dog lily an incredibly supportive husband her writing has appeared in noctua review the elevation review Jenny Magazine, and 521 Magazine's hashtag the slideshow. She was runner-up in Lit Youngstown 2019 short, short fiction contest. Since 2020, she has been leading the writing club at Davis Family YMCA, where all are welcome, no membership or fee required. Visit her website at rwfranklin.com to learn more or connect. So, Franklin, would you please start us off with a poem? Sure. Um, so this is called Gypsy Lane, and it was actually published by Jenny Magazine, which is um, out of YSU. Um, so, wild are the weeds that grow on Gypsy Lane, long stems, sun brown, wilting flowers forgotten in mid-bloom. August winds bring flames, the wild woods sleep and dream of raindrops. Twisted branches droop low, dried flaking leaves sing prayers of cooler days. Time is just a memory, consciousness forgotten at the intersection. Gypsy Lane is not where you come to find yourself. It is not where you lose yourself. It is where yourself is stolen and your dreams are lost. We are the reckless tombs, the chaotic stumps of morals. Fall's breeze blows a kiss to summer's wind anywhere but on Gypsy's Lane. Hmm. Thank you very much. Um, so you've written about how finding a writing community has helped you overcome anxieties and insecurities. I have personally experienced this. And so I'm, I'm interested in knowing more about your experiences. Yes. Um, so I've pretty much always been writing like for as long as I can remember, but I didn't really share it with anybody until, um, right around 2017 is when I realized like, this is what I want to do. Um, and I started going to conferences and workshops and I found the writer circle with Lit Youngstown. And when I started doing that, um, I realized there are a lot of people who have MFAs or English degrees or, you know, some sort of, um, college education that is aiding their writing process. And I have none of that, um, I don't even have a college degree and the college that I do have under my belt is in um, technology. So it's not related at all. And so I was a little intimidated um, to have these people who have that background reading my writing because it, I just felt like I was not at their level and who am I to be sharing my work with them. Um, but what I discovered is that they didn't care that I didn't have that background. They just wanted to, to read my work and help me improve and help me get better. And so that just made me feel so much more welcome in the, the writing community. And um, it, it made me realize that 
as a whole, writers don't care, you know, what type of background you have. They just want to see your writing. They want to see what you're doing. And I feel like that's how it should be, you know? Um, so now, like anytime I go to a critique group or anytime I'm trying to help somebody with their writing, I'm looking at, okay, what are they doing well? And what can I point out to them that's working well? And let's, you know, help them keep that going. And then what do they need to improve? And when you're giving the critique to improve, you don't give it in a way that like discourages them. It makes them think they can't keep going. You give it in a way that says, okay, you can do this. You can improve this. And um, we actually like in the writer circle with like Youngstown, we have a completely different group than when I first started. And so now it's like, I'm almost like a little bit of a veteran, which is weird for me, <laughs> but I'm trying to keep in mind, like the uh, mentality and the welcoming environment that was there when I started. <clears throat> and I'm trying to pass that on to like the new members and make sure they know that they're welcome, no matter what their background is or anything like that. So. Well, that's really cool. Yeah. Cause you, you've blogged about learning how to relight, re, re, I'm sorry, learning how to relearning how to write, like starting over and throwing out what you know and, and building that back up. Yeah, um, because I had taken almost like a year and a half off of writing because I was teaching myself how to code and do web development. And so I couldn't focus on my writing. And then I felt, again, very insecure, like maybe I can't get back into writing. But then um, probably within two months of me starting to submit again, um, Jenny Magazine picked up a different piece of mine. Um, and that kind of gave me a boost. But I also started going back to the writer circle and um, getting those critiques and stuff and realizing oh, I still have value and um, started, you know, doing workshops and stuff. And it it's not something that you really lose, you know you have to realize you still have value and your what you have to offer is always going to be there no matter what. And um, that was a very important lesson for me because writing is so, so important in my life. Um, it's just, it's probably the, the one thing that I can do because I do suffer a lot with anxiety and depression. And it's probably one of the very few things that when I'm doing it, none of that affects me. I feel the most calm. I feel the most relaxed. And so when I'm in any type of environment that's cultivating that side of my life, I feel so much better about myself and about the world around me. So it just makes me feel like the world in general is a, a much more inviting place. That's good. But did you ever feel like the coding aided the writing process or vice versa? Actually, I do feel like there are a lot of parallels you know how we, we have imposter syndrome a lot with writing where, you know, you just feel like you don't know what you're doing a lot of the time, or if you're even good or even if you should get this thing published and stuff like that. And that happens a lot in web development where you're like, what am I doing? Like, this isn't working and stuff. And then, you know, it's almost like that when your code works and you see it, it working on the screen, you're like, yes. And it's almost that same feeling when you get that, that, um, acceptance, you know, you're like, yes, that, that works. Okay, cool. You know, or like when somebody, a reader is like, oh my gosh, I loved, you know, this specific piece. And it's that same feeling. Um, 
so yeah, I see a lot of parallels, which is so weird because they're so different, you know, and I feel like they're, they're two different ones, extremely logical and particular, you have to be exact with the language and stuff. And then the other one is more free and creative and, but they, there are quite a few parallels to them. <laughs> well, that's cool. That's cool. All right. So let's talk about the, the lit Youngstown festival that's coming up this October. Um, what does it offer and what are your guys' expectations for it? Um, oh my goodness, what does it offer? That is like, I, I mean, so um, the first year that I went, I was blown away by what it offers because the price is so low. Like I have been to single day conferences that cost double or even like, you know, two and a half times what Lit Youngstown's Fall Literary Festival costs. And it doesn't even cover, you know, near what our two and a half day festival covers. Um, we've got, I think, five tracks um, or five concurrent sessions going each day, Friday and Saturday. And um, there are so many different sessions for nonfiction, fiction, poetry, um, there's even going to be children's lit um, offerings. And this year we have a film festival built into it for the first time. Um, there's just so much that I feel like every time somebody asks me, what is there to offer? I'm like, I can't even answer that because there is so much going on that it's like, do you want to sit here all day? Um, Cause I will sit here all day and talk about it. Like we do it, have another hour. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So we can do this. Um, but yeah, we'll be showing three different films. Um, we will have, there are going to be readings that are open to the public that are going to be free. Um, so besides, you know, even if you can't make it during the um, actual workshops and um, craft talks, you can come to some of the free readings um, and at least make it there. Um, so yeah, there's just a lot of wonderful things. Cool, cool. And, and was, were all of you involved in the planning process for this? Like everyone yeah. here? Yes, everyone here is involved in the planning process. Okay. Julio, what did you do for the the, the festival? Um, <laughs> that's an interesting question already. Um, <laughs> what I did for the festival is just um, give feedback um, and follow through with some of the, the minor tasks that um, boards um, tend to overlook in other circles. Um, but just show up is just the first one. <laughs> Second, um, listen um, and give uh, any critical feedback for the planning stage, whether it's um, uh, who, uh, who might be um, worth look, taking a look at for a workshop or a session um, and making sure that we are in agreement towards uh, what are um, uh, important steps moving forward to making sure that one, the festival is welcoming, it's bigger and better than last year, but two, that we're overcoming some of the challenges that a lot of other festivals might be going through, uh, which is attendance, for example, in this climate, um, accessibility, uh, uh, making sure that people um, are connected together. One thing that I want to highlight 
is uh, uh, the support group on Facebook um, that uh, Karen made sure was in, uh, in many stages at the forefront. Make sure that people are talking to each other, making sure that rides are established, um, letting people know where things are. And so to kind of um, piggyback a little bit of what RW mentioned about this festival being having so much to offer, it's a community. <laughs> you know, it, it, it might seem simple on paper. It's a festival, there's a few days, there's sessions, but this isn't one of those kind of festivals where you need to show your credentials at the door. This is, this is one of those uh, uh, festivals where you walk in and you're judged by how many publications you have. You are simply welcomed. Um, and so part of my, uh, I'm just a fan. <laughs> I'm, I'm a fan and, and a believer of what, um, what this committee is um, focusing on, what the festival is about. And, and I, I love Karen, sorry. <laughs> I just had to throw that up. <laughs> She's an easy person to love. She's very kind-hearted. <laughs> I'm tearing off you guys. I have to, I'm going to elevate it to Karen Hearted because that's my new standard for, for kindness. <laughs> oh, it's not easy being me. <laughs> that's probably true, but you're still very kind. <laughs> I really appreciate that so much. Thank you. Um, so in no particular order, Pam, Barbara, and Karen, what, what, have, you, what have you guys worked on and, um, and what are your expectations for the festival? Well, I was on the general planning committee and I was also on the subcommittee that selected the uh, speakers in the workshops, which I thought would be an easy task. And boy, was I surprised. <laughs> we we got, I, 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 I don't remember exactly how many proposals we got, but we got a considerable number of proposals that we had to go through and make the selection to fill out the, the, the five tracks uh, on, on, the, uh, on the workshop. And it, I would just echo some of the things that uh, Julio said. It, a lot of the other literary organizations that I checked into did seem to be elitist, did seem to be cliquish, did seem to uh, want to know how many times you've been published or, or where you've been published or how many books you had. And that is what drew me to, to Lit Youngstown. It's not like that at all. It, it is very inclusive, very welcoming. I remember attending an event at another literary conference and the president of that organization was just flat out unfriendly. So that's not going to attract people. You have to be friendly. You have to be welcoming. You have to be inclusive. And that's what I like about Youngstown. And that also carries over to the festival because it is very open, very welcoming. It's a chance to network with people that you may not have seen otherwise, other than on Facebook or, or uh, Instagram or someplace else. Uh, so you get to meet people. Um, and the, 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 the workshops are just, uh, they're just outstanding. They're, they're better than any other uh, literary festival that I've attended in terms of the quality of the workshops. That's excellent. Um, I'll chime in. This is Pam. So I think we should say um, that that the gathering in for um, the festival is Thursday, October 20th, and the festival is October 21 and 22, in case people listening are interested in um, 
signing up for it. So uh, what I did initially was a little bit of the fund fundraising. Karen does the lion's share of the fundraising. Um, and I, in my career, I did fundraising. So I've approached a few individuals um, about making gifts because keeping the cost so low, which Karen, maybe you can chime in on how much it's going to be. It's less than $50, I believe, for um, the whole thing, you know, for everything. That is so inexpensive. Um, but that's because there's significant fundraising to support um, people coming in. That's how the cost can stay low. And it's also really clever management with Karen on choosing food and uh, location and all of that. It's also such a great asset for Youngstown, um, Lit Youngstown is um, in this festival, brings in a lot of people and money into the community. So I helped with fundraising. I also helped with the selection process. And I agree, what a, an incredible people submitting proposals. It was very difficult to choose and yet the committee was um, really worked hard um, to, to just put together these, these pieces um, for the workshops and so on. Um, and then I anticipate that I'll be proofreading the program and working on the program when that comes out. So th those have been my contributions so far. Excellent. And did you guys get a special grant to help fund the part of the, or, or was it chiefly done through uh, fundraising? We have, we just received a $5,000 grant from Ohio Humanities um, and yay, we're That's so awesome. thankful. Yeah, I agree, uh, so thankful. And um, also parts of several other grants have been earmarked for the festival. Um, so we have, we have quite a few funders and sponsors. It's, it's so, so awesome. <laughs> That's we really appreciate it. You know, as I'm hearing you're talking, I'm thinking about how, well, how thankful I am that all of you are on board and how, how great an asset is our, our people. You know, it's, it's funny how I was just teasing Barbara about this the other day. Well, I'll ask somebody, will you please do this? And they say yes. And then they thank me. I'm like, you're, you just agreed to do work. <laughs> and you're thanking me, you know, like I'm thanking you. <laughs> that's final <laughs> but it, it really um it really makes a difference um but also I can see how Youngstown how living in Youngstown and I'm not from here so how living in Youngstown has shaped the organization and the way we do things so Youngstown is an impoverished city and even highly educated people doing professional work here are often impoverished. Mm. So I wanted to make sure that cost was never a barrier. We could have been an organization for people who already had every option, but I didn't want that for this organization. And so I'm really happy that we can figure out ways to, to keep the the cost of this conference though. So, um, so to Pam's question, um, the early bird, which is runs until the end of August, it is um, $55. And that gets you into every conference thing, um, as well as Saturday 
lunch. Um, the dinners for Friday and Saturday are just $15 each. Um, and one of them includes a bowling party this year. And um, yeah, and so um, what else? And then for lunch and breakfast, we'll be on our own. We recognize that the, the big cost sometimes of any attending any conference is overnight accommodations. So we're also trying to pair interested attendees with home hosts or providing opportunities on that Facebook support page for room sharing and things like that. But we also did get a block of rooms that, you know, we had this gorgeous, huge building, historic building built in 1907 that was just sitting empty for many decades. And now it's a Hilton Doubletree right downtown. When I moved here, the Youngstown, the downtown Youngstown was fu almost fully shuttered. And now it's almost fully occupied with these great, quirky, independent restaurants and all of these lovingly restored historic buildings. And so we really want to be a part of that revitalization just by bringing people here and giving them an idea. If you had, if you thought you knew what Youngstown is about, but you'd never been here, come and see what we're doing. We're working so hard um, to 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 write to change things that's fantastic so and we this will this will air on the, today's the 8th and you know this will air on the 18th so the early bird goes through the 31st and then can you still register for the conference all the way up to the conference yes it only goes up to 75 dollars after that but it just helps us we have an early bird because it helps us to know as accurately as possible what those numbers will be but we also take walk-ins, so. Okay, good to know. All right, cool. Um, next up, we have Julio Valentin. He is the author of three chapbooks, the latest being Those Who Pray to Rice. They served as a guest editor of Mutata Ray, Portrait, Coffin Bell Journal, Variety Pack, and was the co-founder co of the late Cringeworthy Poets Collective. Their work has been anthologized and published in dozens of outlets and collections, including, but not limited to, Thimble Literary Magazine, Cavity, and Bangor Literary Journal. Julio, thank you for joining us, and would you like to read a poem? Absolutely. <clears throat> Slight Rima. Too short a time to think of summer to bend wing, possess our shade, and tend to shifts of tersely insight that gives me back to godlike sea, ring from clouds too parched to be obscure or coarsely. To say goodbye to just the sound of breaking when far, I have been one to think unearthly. I choose my way to, to the pressured sky to sow. My thought into growing what heaven might know. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so your, your chapbook, the most recent one, Those Who Pray to Rice, it heavily involves being Puerto Rican-American and the, the country of Puerto Rico. What do you want the world to know about those topics? And what did you draw upon? I know it's a big question, but <laughs> what did you draw upon when you, when you, wrote, the, when you wrote them? <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, and um, what I want the world to know is that 
the the collection um, was kind of a response to a survey that came out in uh, the two, uh, 2016, 2017, where they put out this massive nation survey that said, um, uh, do you think that Puerto Ricans are citizens or not? And uh, <laughs> it was a very clear divided percentage of 50-50 people not being aware that Amer that Puerto Ricans were citizens. Um, and after that, it, it just made it so much, so validating uh, in a way of why I still feel a bit of a, uh, of an immigrant, even though I was born here, born in Detroit, Michigan, uh, raised in the Bronx, um, raised in, in Puerto Rico for, for a time, uh, grew up a little bit in, in Florida, came back to uh, the Bronx, and now I live in Buffalo, and today I'm in Toronto. Um, so yeah, it's, it's uh, I wanted people to kind of get this little bit of insight of of one piece of narrative um, that Puerto Ricans have been moving around for so long. We've been here, especially in the Rust Belt. We've been here since the early 1900s, just trying to, to make things work. Um, and so when Karen mentioned about the buildings, I'm thinking about how many Puerto Ricans have been out there in Youngstown and Cleveland and Chicago and Detroit, just trying to help build a new life um, here uh, in this idea of Americana. Um, so some of the topics, some of those things kind of uh, led to this conversation of who am I outside of this? And that's where rice came into play. Um, this idea that uh, am I the place that I was raised in? Am I um, the culture I was born into? Um, am I um, the child of, of someone, um, of something, of, of some entity of some, of some sort? Am I supposed to follow some legacy? And I couldn't help but gravitate towards this thing that has always been there since the day I could remember, uh, which was rice. Um, and this idea that going through all life's challenges, every single one of them, whether it's driving across the country and it, during a time where um, ICE is out just to grab brown people out of the roads, um, to be in, uh, in a place where border patrol can knock on your door and assume that you're something that you're not and take you away, um, to be in a place where you're still you know, slightly judged or called dirty because your your skin's just a not not brown enough or too brown for some. So, yeah, the rice was the one thing that that I could sink my head to and dry out the tears sometimes, or um, kind of get this idea that you know there's some substance um, in all of this. Uh, not to sound like a pessimist, but like the, to bind to find value in the suffering of it all, because otherwise it's just suffering. <clears throat> um, so that's where that's where my collection led to, and that's what I hope that people um, garner, that, that there's, there's still something left 
um, there's still some rust. There's, there's still some pegao um, at the bottom of the pot. Pegao being that cooked, that overcooked rice in the bottom of the pot. That, by the way, that's considered good luck in, in Puerto Rican culture. If you serve someone pegao, it means you wish them well, you wish them well, because we don't want to waste any food because we know what it means to go hungry, so. It's beautiful. And uh, you're, you're in grad school right now? Uh, no, no, I, <laughs> I actually graduated uh, early, I think early last year. Time is subjective. <laughs> Post-COVID, it's meaningless. <laughs> I don't even need COVID to, to make that excuse. It's just been like that for a long time. <laughs> uh, yeah, but it's, um, I think I graduated last year, early last year. And uh, what's funny is that the, the challenge that I had during grad school was, it, I went to grad school for an English literature degree in an MA um, and I kept writing poems for the final exam that the comprehensive exam you're expected to to um, write in length in an academia kind of way but I kept writing poetry I kept writing metaphor and I failed the first two times because I couldn't I couldn't get outside of my poetry voice <laughs> outside of that um, and so for that was probably the first and only time I've ever cursed myself for being a poet and writer in a time where I just wanted to write a, directly at the thing um, for <laughs> the purpose of this exam. Finally, when I got through it, um, I'm teaching. I'm, I don't have the certificate. It's weird. I'm not, I don't have a PhD or an MFA. And so I never thought that I was allowed to be able to teach poetry in on the college level but I was specifically requested for because I am always doing workshops and always trying to um, uh, push out this idea of literacy and, and the importance of being able to communicate yourself and so I teach at a few colleges now I'm just I've been loving it I've been it's it's been rewarding <laughs> but gosh i don't want to take that grad school exam again I... <laughs> <laughs> so you know without a doubt you're in the right place teaching the right subject <laughs> oh yes yes i just i only want to teach poetry but then uh uh this past uh, semester and this upcoming semester i'll be teaching also composition and i tested um of an idea with with some of my students last year about how to how to how to teach them poetry without teaching them poetry <laughs> which and when i say that i mean how do you how do you inspire someone to write where they go on and they inspire other people <clears throat> and sure my gosh that uh, i i've been so humbled and blessed to be able to like to see these students just one after another, like light up once they find the thing that they can talk about and then spread that kind of communication amongst each other. And then to put that on the page and then to be able to own those words has been such a beautiful, beautiful thing. So yes, that's, 
it's been awesome. <laughs> That's wonderful. I'm so happy for you. <laughs> That's really thank cool. You, so opening this up to everybody else, uh, what were some of the pro- the challenges you found in planning the festival? I I think let me let this is Karen. Let me jump in. I um I think it took me a few rounds to learn how to how to plan a festival. The first year, well, the, this is funny. The very first year we were in existence, somebody said you should have a conference. And we're like, oh, no, 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 we need to get our sea legs. So we did it in year two. So I don't know what that was about. But in the first year, I sort of ran it all out of my head, right? In the second year, you know, we slowly began to bring people around a table, but it was just kind of me doing things and telling them what I was doing. And it took me a while to figure out how to engage people in a way that was really meaningful, hopefully to them, as well as useful to the conference in the sense that everybody around that table has great ideas. And there's a way to engage people's ideas without stopping to have a big discussion about every small decision. So what we're doing this year for the for the first time, I think, is um, having subcommittees. And so that we have experts who have really thought deeply about individual decisions, because that's the crazy thing about a conference is the gazillions of tiny decisions. I know you guys just went through this at Ohio Poetry Association, right? Yeah. But it was so challenging for you because you've never had a conference before right and probably won't again so we really have the advantage of looking back to see what was working and what we still want to tinker with okay individual snag what what have you guys run into like in terms of finding vendors or getting people in for the workshops getting information out i i think uh uh for me it uh to kind of piggyback on what barbara and pam mentioned earlier um the uh in terms of selecting the 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 sessions i find i the challenge for me personally was how not to be biased because i wanted to go to so many of them (laughs) i i it's it's interesting because uh, I have a little experience in, in working in, in conference planning for a lot of other organizations. And this is the first time I've actually had fun that I actually looked forward to this. And, and so the new challenge was trying not to um, forget responsibility um, because this is a, this is a big thing. This is a, a this is not an oiled machine. This is a living, breathing thing that's growing. And how do you make sure to nurture it and, and give it attention? So when uh, Karen calls out to you asking, can you do something? You say yes. And you say thank you because you want to, you <laughs> want to give life to this thing. Uh, so I guess the challenge is moderation in that, in that aspect, um, which I think uh, uh, Karen has been wonderful about um, especially with this idea of the subcommittees and 
making sure that not one of us are are um, overcome with with anxiety and stress for meeting deadlines to um, to get a ton of work done. And it's it's ironic just how how willing now all of us can be to step up to the plate for it. Sure. And, and I, I think for me, oh, sorry, go ahead, Barbara. For me, my and this is a personal frustration. I know how great this conference is. I know how great Lit Youngstown is. I know what a great opportunity it is. But getting other people that I think should be there, understanding that is an enormous sense of frustration. <laughs> I invited several publishers to come to the vendor fair and they just blew me off like, you know, why should I bother doing that? It, it, it's a tremendous opportunity for vendors to make connections and to sell their products. I don't understand why they don't understand that and and that's just a personal frustration sure well that's where you where you where you're gonna have to do something like what i'll be doing for the for, uh, for the conference or for the festival uh, where i'll be getting a van and actually stuffing it with writers from my area and then just unload them at the festival. Let them run wild. <laughs> I am not kidding. I already have a bunch of people that I plan on dragging there because sometimes <laughs> they need to see it to believe it. So yeah, oh, I, that is incredibly frustrating. That's really cool. But to to Barbara's point, maybe maybe these vendors will. This will be the first time they've heard of the festival. But then maybe when they hear about it again they'll say, oh, I've heard about this. Um, maybe that's something I should look into. And this year we have the largest book fair we've ever had. There'll be 25 tables of, of presses, journals, programs, booksellers, um, and pro, you know, it's just the, and so those have been actually have been pouring in. So I think what all of you are doing is working and just have putting it out on social media and especially asking directly, but just all those cross connections, I think, have been working well. And I think it's I think it's not unreasonable to, to, to request that listeners like seek out these links and just share them, even if they can't go or they've already planned to go. I think that would be a good idea. Um. And Pam, you you mentioned before we started that uh, perhaps maybe it's not about the snags you hit this year, but maybe the context, the better context is what have you learned do, from previous festivals that have helped make this year a lot easier? <laughs> right. Um, well, one thing that I've appreciated a lot about uh, Karen's planning of the conference, there's the whole planning process, which is about a, a year and and um, and we do these meetings on Zoom, which thank goodness we do them on Zoom because I live far enough away and I also am gone in the wintertime from Ohio, it would be impossible for me to participate in the planning process if we didn't have this set up in Zoom. And, and during the pandemic, um, it was an enormous undertaking to do the entire conference on Zoom, but now it's shifted to in-person. So then you have to consider all the safety issues too. But you go through this nearly a year long planning process, and then it's like a massive um, kind of a sea change. You get into the conference itself 
And that means um, making sure that the attendees, really all of that planning has to become invisible and seamless. And it's about them experiencing, learning, meeting with each other, all the gatherings, the everything that goes into it needs to it needs to be seamless and enjoyable. And that means, especially for Karen, is putting out little fires that you don't want people to know about. <laughs> and so there's there can be this very chaotic behind the scenes element where you're fixing little things, but the people at the conference are really just experiencing it and enjoying it and rolling with it. I mean, people are super happy about that. And so something that I've enjoyed is that after the conference, I call it a debriefing, Karen calls it a postmortem, is, is sitting down, reviewing uh, evaluations from people, suggestions, and then incorporating as much as possible what makes sense to make next year's conference festival even better. Um, and so it could be small changes, but that's the important thing about the, the committee and all coming together. And it just really is Karen's leadership in the whole thing that uh, makes it so successful and makes each festival year after year a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better. So people attending are really enjoying it and walking away knowing that they received so much from this. So that's kind of all I have to say about that. <laughs> I, I think, so, well, so one time somebody told me the best thing you can hope for is that it looks organized from the outside. So I really appreciated that. But <laughs> I think I also benefit from going to conferences like the OPA um, conference to see, or the National Federation of State Poetry Societies conference yeah. that was held in Columbus, hosted by the Ohio Poetry Association. Formally, right and mm -hmm. just to see how other problems are solved or how other what other you know organizational strategies are available and borrowing slash stealing quite quite heavily and so that's also been been super beneficial and people have been really generous about taking the time to talk to us about how they solve particular problems so we're continuing to to benefit from from that networking as well. Yeah. We we have a meeting set up this week for the books the bookstore. Yes, <laughs> so, I so appreciate it. Yeah. So that was a new thing we added this year as we felt that last last year um looking back at last year we thought that this year hiring a book fair manager would really solve a lot of problems and just make everything so much smoother to have one person be central command so um we're gonna try that this year yeah that, that uh, would probably help quite a bit sorry sorry rw go ahead no you're fine i was actually going to bring that up that i think one thing that is going to also help a lot with this year is that we've got a couple of um like specific people working on things like the book fair manager is going to be a major help um because i know we had one person last year who was doing the book fair, um, kind of helping with tech, with anybody, you know, who was having a session who had tech, and then also kind of helping direct volunteers and stuff like that. So like this year, we've got an actual book fair manager, 
um, I will be doing tech support for, I'll be dedicated for that. Um, and then, you know, we've got different volunteers who are session moderators and things like that, um, which that's always something that we can use as volunteers is always super helpful. Um, just anybody who knows the um, kind of like the rooms and stuff around our, our venue. Um, it's always super helpful to have people to direct attendees and just be like, yeah, okay, this room is here, you know. Um, but I think having those, especially those two dedicated people who put there and then somebody to take care of tech um, will be very helpful so that if um, a session leader needs to, you know, get a PowerPoint going and they're having trouble, that'll be super helpful that they know that there's this one person who can help them with it. Um, and so I think that is going to help the, the festival behind the scenes stuff. And that's, um, you know, like Pam was saying, it's those little things behind the scenes, the attendees probably won't really see, but it'll at least help things run a little smoother um, than some of the previous years. Yeah. Single point of contact for big roles like that is important. You do you are you is Lit Youngstown running uh hybrid or online sessions? No, not this year. Yeah, we we made some accommodations for COVID last year for people who at the last minute um just didn't feel comfortable coming in and we so understood that, but the facilities aren't particularly set up for that and we also don't really have the expertise. I have so much respect for, for how the OPA um, brought in half the conference from around the country and made it so inclusive. Um, but I, I just don't think that's something we'll be able to pull off. Yeah, yeah you guys have a ton of programming. I was blown away by how, how much content and how many workshoppers you brought in. It was nuts. Yeah, it's different if everything at o, at OPA, everything was taking place in one room and there was one concurrent session, right? So that makes it a little bit easier to include people who are not there. Yeah, because then you have one team of two that's just doing that stuff all day long, making sure that it's online and that the people are being listened to when they're typing comments and stuff. But you would need, what, four or five teams in your case, because you have all the different breakout sessions. Yeah. Okay. So next up, we're gonna we're going to talk to Barbara Marie Minnie, a native of West of West Virginia, who is a transgender woman, award-winning poet, writer, and quiet activist. Her work has appeared in numerous anthologies and publications, including Politico and the Buckeye Flame. Barbara also wrote the introduction to the 2021 Akron Pride Festival Guide. Barbara's first collection of poetry, If There's No Heaven, was the winner of the 2020 Poetry is Life Book Award and was selected by the Akron Beacon Journal as a, as a Best Northeast Ohio Book in 2020. Barbara is a retired attorney and lives in Talmadge, Ohio with her wife of over 40 years. Barbara, thank you for joining us. And could you please read a poem? Sure. I'll read a poem from If There's No Heaven, the poem that gives the book its title. It's called Bubble Wrap. Sitting cross-legged on the floor, raw and exposed, arms wrapped tightly around my body, giving myself a hug, there's no one else around to do it, searching for words of comfort that will clothe my naked emotions, lost somewhere in the fogginess of my brain. All I hear is, it is never enough. I am never enough. 
The past has never really passed, especially the mistakes. Haunting the halls of my mind long after they were made or used as a war club, beating myself to a bloody pulp. Being hard on myself does not make me a better person, only defeated more. All I hear is, it is never enough. I am never enough. I've gone far beyond what my father thought I could. Doing my best was never good enough. Sometimes I dreamed of being perfect, but even that is not enough. Lying in bed in the dark, trying to go to sleep, mind racing like a hamster on a running wheel. When she reaches for my hand and tells me she loves me, my first thought is why? How could anyone love me? All I hear is, it is never enough. I am never enough. I should swaddle myself in bubble wrap as protection against the world, but that would do no good. I would still be trapped with my own worst enemy in a cocoon of my own making, telling me it is never enough. I am never enough. I'm not even good enough to be trans with what I still have dangling between my legs. It is better to keep hidden so that I can live my life. If there's no heaven, it's all a waste of time anyway. I have found not caring anymore to sometimes be liberating. That is a beautiful, I, <laughs> that is a beautiful poem, Barbara. Um, Thank you. I'm so happy that you, you read that poem because I wanted to ask you about this book. If there's no heaven, it's a beautiful book and it, it's, it's definitely, it's definitely deserving of, of the awards it won. And it, it documents the first two years of your transition um, after your transition. What was it like working on that collection? And what did you learn during the writing process? I started writing the book just about the time that I decide to transition fully. I had written poetry in college in the 1970s. And then I graduated, went to law school, started my legal career, and I didn't write again for the next 36 years. When I retired in 2014, I needed something to fill the void uh, because my work had really become all encompassing. And if I had not retired when I did, I probably would not still be here today. Uh, so it, it was more for my mental health than anything else uh, as far as retiring. And I was able to retire early and I took advantage of that. So I, I began writing to fill the void of, of retirement. And interestingly enough, I didn't start writing poetry. I started writing a novel, uh, an erotic novel. And I did send it to a publisher. They liked it, but they said it wasn't long enough. So I, 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 when I got that back, I thought, you know, really my genre is poetry. So that's what I should be concentrating on. And I'm going through a transition, which is a perfect subject for poetry. So the book, as most of my poetry, is very personal, very sensitive, very raw, and very emotional. And I, I sometimes get criticized for getting emotional during my readings, but you know it is what it is. And um, I could have said, uh, I could repeat a lot of things that R.W. said too about depression, anxiety, the imposter syndrome, which is particularly prevalent as a transgender woman. Um, and so I, I wrote the book, the poems contemporaneously with what I was going through at the time. Uh, 
And transition is not an easy process. Transition is not an easy process if you have a spouse, because it's not just you transitioning, it's both of you transitioning. And things were difficult for her. And she had, she had gone, gone through a transition before with addiction, but it, it still did not prepare us for the emotional roller coaster that we were on with the ups and the downs, uh, getting the hormones right, you know, crying at the drop of a hat or the next moment being angry. Um, it, 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 it is, and, and what I learned about myself is that I, I have all these emotions and I still have all these emotions. I still have the depression and the anxiety, but writing gave me an outlet to address those or to help relieve some of the pressure caused by the anxiety and the depression. And it's helping me right now because I'm going through a very deep depression right now. And I'm, I'm writing what I'm calling depression poems, a series of depression poems, uh, you know, depression poem number one, number two, number three. Um, and, and that is helping me get through this process. So what I learned about myself is I am who I am. And I started writing the book uh, after two years of intensive gender therapy that really helped me answer that basic question, who am I? And writing the book helped to reinforce who I am. The first year of my transition was the happiest year of my life. And then the world changed with COVID and things went have seemed to have been going downhill since then. I know that's not the case, but, uh, but you know, I still doubt my talent. I still doubt where I uh, stand against uh, the poetry or the writing of other people in the community. And I still hold back in terms of being a part of the community. And, you know, there's a poem, there's a poem in my book about walls. I've always lived behind walls mm -hmm. and I've, kind of ventured out with my transition more so than any other time in my life, but the walls are still there. And, and I need to learn to come out from behind those walls more frequently and, and, and give the world what I have to offer. Yeah, and then the world will be a better place for it, undoubtedly. Um, you, you, I would like to think so. I think that's true. I think that it, you know, I mean, I, I don't want to soapbox here because, but, but, you know, it, it, you're going through something difficult and you're sharing and, and other people are going to look at that and they're going to be like, at least someone gets it. You know what I mean? It's, that's always value. That's, that's always valuable. And, and a lot of people, it was interesting until very recently, <clears throat> my, my book did not sell in the LGBTQ plus community. It was all cisgender individuals who purchased my book. And they would tell me that even though I was writing it as a transgender woman, the poems in the book spoke to them as well. And um, that surprised me at first because I thought my audience would be the LGBTQ community and that was not the case. Uh, and, and I'm fine with that. And, and that actually, I think, gave my work a greater impact beyond that limited community. That's interesting. And, and, you know, you talk about walls. How did that wall come down for like Youngstown? Because you, you live like almost an hour away, you're in Talmadge and now you're heavily involved with them. And you, you've, you've talked about like how accepting it is. How did that, 
How did that occur? The short answer is the people. Um, I, I, I was trying to think back in preparation for this, my first experience with Let Youngstown, and I'm not sure exactly when it was, but I, I did, uh, my wife and I both attended the 2020 conference, which because of COVID was totally online. And I know how, even though it was online, we were so impressed with the organization and the quality of the workshops and the speakers. And that's when, you know, I, I, I started realizing that despite my depression, d- despite my anxiety, despite my doubts of whether my work holds up with, against other people's, I, 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 it was important to be part of a community. And we started attending the, uh, was the last Wednesday night out, happy hours. We started attending those and got to meet more people. And um, I was asked to be on the grant writing committee, which I did. I'm not sure I did it very well, but I did it. Uh, And then I was asked to be on the planning committee, uh, which is, this is actually the first planning committee planning anything that I have ever been involved in. And I thought there would be a a lot of anxiety involved, but I have to say that, that Karen's organization keeps us from being overwhelmed and depressed and anxious about the work that we're doing. And it's very valuable work. And then I was asked to be on the board of directors. And I think I've been on for two months now. I'm still trying to learn my way around, but I I look upon that as a valuable opportunity and and, and a very uh, valuable experience for me. And I've been on nonprofit boards before, and they really weren't the right boards for me to be on. So, um, you know, so I was on for a couple of years and then I decided this is just not working. Uh, so I, I, I welcome the opportunity to be on the board of directors of Lit Youngstown because I, I, I believe so much in the organization and the people. Excellent. Awesome. That's really cool. Um, so this, this question, opening this up to everybody, uh, what are some of Lit Youngstown's greatest triumphs? We've ever put at the festival or otherwise. Uh, okay, so I'm just going to go first because I love the writer circle. It has completely changed my life as far as like my writing and the connections that I've made, like how Barbara mentioned the people. I, like they just, for some reason, Lit Youngstown just seems to attract the most amazing people. And inside this this critique group we get for some reason we get the right balance of people as far as we critique each other's work in a way that's not um, discouraging it's not really harsh but we're able to tell people you know this is what you're doing so well I love this about your piece and but we're also able to say like okay so this part right here could use a little work. And usually we're able to say, this could be a suggestion on how to improve it. So we're not just tearing apart each other's work or anything like that. It's not one of those critique groups where you go and when you leave, you feel like, oh, I'm such a terrible writer. You actually feel good about it and you feel like, oh, I can do something with this. And um, you end up making connections as far as like, 
people who aren't in your genre can still give you feedback. We have poetry, we have nonfiction. There's somebody right now who's writing a memoir. There's somebody who's um, writing a fantasy novel. There are short story writers. There's, you know, it just is a, a very nice variety of authors and writers. And um, I know for me personally, there's no way that I would have the publications I do without the writer circle and just lit Youngstown as a whole. Um, so that for me, that is like one of the, a major triumph for lit Youngstown is just attracting the people who just want to improve everybody around them and, and keep each other going. That is so fantastic to hear about holy cats. I think I learned um, from a professor I had in my MFA program. We attended, uh, he facilitated a community-based uh, writer circle, but there were maybe 40 people in that room. It was quite amazing. And this group had been meeting for forever. And when we left, I said, you're so good at you're so good at that and he said well it's a little bit different in an academic setting the motivations and the leverage are really different in a community-based setting your primary goal is to get people to come back and so that I've really tried to hold on to that um, in every in every way um so I'm I'm really glad to hear that something we might consider a month-to-month program has had such an impact. Um, and we've also had some so much fun with some big um, undertakings, like um, we partner with the public library on an NEA Big Read. Um, that was so much, so much fun. We initiated a 500-foot memory mural that's now on a retaining wall in um, Youngstown and we had just last spring we um, received a grant from the Ohio Arts Council to bring in three writers in residence and we with each of them we had a culminating event so we had a black history tour a Hispanic um, culture celebration and um, Julia I wish you had been there we had so much food we could have had a wedding it was so so much fun and dancing, should have seen Manuel Iris dancing with the women, just so beautiful. We also had um, a local theater um, round table where um, I think there were 23 different theater venues represented um, and they just got together. Yeah, just so, I mean, it's been really fun how, I love how we don't have to stay in our lane because literary arts is everything. If you can find a story in it, there's some kind of a way that we can make them connect. And so I like being able to keep everything fresh so that we're not just doing the same things year after year outside of the same favorite things that we're doing that that are working well, but we can just also try, try all kinds of stuff. I also want to highlight, um, I don't feel like this is mentioned a whole lot, but one thing I love about Lit Youngstown is they always make sure to um, use local vendors and locally owned venues um, as much as possible 
Um, so they're not using, like when we are hosting in, um, you know, any type of like readings or anything like that, they're in locally owned spaces. So it's always giving back to the community in some form, as opposed to like going to a chain or something like that. Um, I try to emphasize that a lot when I'm talking to people about Lady Youngstown, because I feel like that's really important that they're not just um, focused on, or they're not, they're being very conscious about where the money is going to, if they are renting a space or something like that, or buying food from somewhere, they're finding local restaurants and um, local caterers and things like that. It's, it's really wonderful how conscious they are of the community. Yeah. And I'm sure that pays dividends from the community. They're probably, they're probably very protective of your organization. No, we're going through the process of strategic planning right now. And our facilitator asked, have you taken the time to talk about how much you're bringing into the community? How much economic activity are you generating every year? And I, I haven't done that. That would be really interesting to see. Yeah. Cool. For me, for, for me personally, one of the triumphs, I think, was during uh, the pandemic, the new book news that uh, Lit Youngstown uh, sponsored. I had a book published right at the beginning of the pandemic. All of my launch parties, all of my readings were canceled. But Lit Youngstown, Karen came up with this idea of having a new book news with two or three authors who had books coming out during the pandemic, uh, reading their work and, and talking about it. And I was privileged to participate in one of those. And, and I thought that was just a, a great thing to do. It showed great innovation and great flexibility during a time when the world was basically shut down. That was so much fun. And those readings are still archived on our YouTube channel. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Okay, cool, cool. All right, I'm going to introduce Pam. Uh, Pam Anderson holds an, a master's in English literature from Kent State and an MFA from North, the Northeast Ohio Master of Fine Arts program, which awarded her a Bisbee Travel and Study Fellowship to Arizona. Much of her writing focuses on the Holocaust, reflecting st stories her father recounted from his, services of, from his service as a paratrooper in the 82nd Airborne Division during World War II. Her poem, Packet, the American Paratrooper, teaches the new kid to pack his parachute, was published in JennyMag.org, and her Holocaust poem, My Brother's Coat, won the Association of Writers and Writing Programs Intro Journals Project Award. Her poetry has also appeared in Work, Mason's Road, Atticus Review, Sky Island Journal, and elsewhere. Pam, thank you so much for joining us, and would you please read a poem? Yeah, thank you. Thanks. Um for hosting this. This is really great. Um, so I'm going to read My Brother's Coat. It's from my um, manuscript of Holocaust poems, which I had set aside for a while, but I've returned to it this year and have added poems. I'm kind of getting the whole, the whole manuscript ready, but um, it's basically um, set in 1938 to 1945, um, Czechoslovakia. So this is My Brother's Coat. Mismatched buttons hang their small bone heads like drunken Germans tilted over empty shot glasses. They barely hold on. I barely hold onto lapels, sink my face 
into cloth redolent with earth, pine, sweat. Two years, only two, since the bolt of wool tumbled across our kitchen table, paper pattern affixed to fabric, shears carving shapes, needle drawing in, dragging out, our mother smoothing red knuckled hands across his shoulders to inspect the fit. She knelt, straight pins protruding from pursed lips to measure the length of the hem. Fish soup simmered on the stove, steam gathered on window panes, and my brother, reckless with the limited beats remaining in his heart, tossed back his head and laughed. That's wonderful. Um, so I, I want to ask you about you know, your interest in the Holocaust and World War II. How did your father's story shape your interests and your writing? Gosh, my dad was, uh, he died in 1997. He was such a storyteller. Um, his people came from England and Ireland. And I think he had a little bit of the Irish, definitely some Blarney and <laughs> the Irish um, storyteller. Um, so our lives were filled with singing and he, dancing. He loved to dance and he told stories, outrageous stories, um, funny things, sometimes sad. Um, he was the storyteller. And, and now I think I'm kind of the family storyteller. And my younger sister says, half of what I tell is not true. <laughs> she kind of says that in jest, but um, so he came out of World War II having fought in the Battle of Normandy. He came out without a scratch, um, but he was not someone who carried heavy things around. He was pretty happy-go-lucky. Um, and so his stories often were about the war were, were funny. How he could say, hello, pretty lady in every language, or, uh, you know, just still some silly things. But from time to time, he would talk about uh, the dark side of the war. And I remember him telling my sisters and me how at the end of the war, his group liberated Wobelin concentration camp in Germany. And it was not an extermination camp in terms of having uh, the fires and the, the, all of that, but it was a death camp. They all were death camps. And he talked about um, how they opened the gates in the camp. And that he said the people were like bones with skin stretched over the top. They were so thin and, and they thought it was just another German trick. And so they didn't want to come out and they were so afraid. It just made such a huge impression on me. Uh, but I really did not write a lot about this initially as I was writing. Uh, I wrote for 20 years about my mother's death from breast cancer she died in 1986, but then my dad died in 97 and I started writing some of his stories too. Um, and so this particular manuscript, which is set in Czechoslovakia, I'm not Czech, I'm not Jewish. You know, people wonder why would you have this intense interest, but it is an interest in the injustice inflicted on people 
all over, all over the place, all around the world, things happening in Ukraine now, it's just wanting to kind of take all of this apart and really examine it minutely, carefully, so that we can learn, I hope, from things that have, have happened in the past. So it's just been a huge interest. And um, I'm sorry my dad's not here to ask him questions or to spend time with him on it. Um, but I think he would really love this. I just do. Yeah. And I'm, I'm certain it's on some level working on it is an homage to your father and what he went through. Yes, it, it absolutely, absolutely is like the one packet that you mentioned in the introduction. That's absolutely about my dad talking about how you had to pack your own parachute. You didn't couldn't trust anyone but yourself to pack your parachute. And he talked about um, he said he was kind of a smallish guy, uh, very slim, maybe five foot ten, but just kind of smallish. And he said uh, when he got into the war, um, his family was very, very poor and he had just, you know, never any dental care. And they put him in boot camp and they knew he was going to be uh, fighting. They knew he'd be jumping um, into the Europe, European front. And he, they didn't have the money or the time to spend fixing his teeth. And so they pulled all of his teeth. He was 18 years old. They pulled all of his teeth, fitted him with dentures. So he said, there they would be on the plane, ready to jump. And he said, he always, he had three big jumps. Always he got behind a big guy. So he said, you know, the jump master would say, hook up and they'd all stand up and they'd hook onto the static line. And he said, the last thing he'd do is he'd take out his teeth and button him into his breast pocket. So he didn't spit him out on the way down. I mean, this is kind of the crazy, funny stuff that he said. And he said, there would always be this big guy in front of him at the door. And the big guy was always the one who was going to panic at the door. So you had to stand far enough back that he could pick up his foot and give him a little push out the door with his boot. <laughs> so out they go. That's the kind of stories my dad told. So vivid and funny but dramatic you know and scary too you know he would say you know you had to be careful if you tangled in a tree on the way down and you got hung up in the tree you know then you're just you're a sitting duck and if you had a bad land you could break an ankle and then that's a problem so all of these stories have just come out in this manuscript that's that's incredibly interesting please let me know when it's done <laughs> i want to read it's it almost done almost done <laughs> um so i want to i want to turn back to the, the the whole group and i want to ask you know what what internal processes keep the group humming humming smoothly because I, you know it's very evident like everybody's like so in love with literary youngstown and and i think everybody should be it's 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 such an inclusive warm atmosphere what have you set up internally that that keeps that going like how do you handle internal conflicts or what discussions do you have to keep the group inclusive what does that what does that behind the scenes look like i can only say three things three words karen 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 <laughs> <laughs> i i feel like in that the too. best possible way 
I'm saying yeah. that in the yeah. most positive. Yes. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. It's it's Karen. It's it's her organization. It's her leadership. <laughs> Karen is a saint. I mean, oh, she's just God. wonderful. Oh no, yeah, Saint Karen. <laughs> when you mentioned the greatest triumph of of Lit's, uh, of Lit Youngstown, I couldn't help but think they have Karen. That's right. right. <laughs> it explains everything. Listen, let me in. Let me in. It's no, it's not. It's not that I'm the face of of it, and I'm so honored to be. But um, but we have great people all the way through, and all of you. I mean, when I ask, you know, on our evaluations, we ask people like what they value. I'm always interested is somebody can go to a conference anywhere. Why do you come to this one? And they always say that the community, the community is not one person. That's everybody, right? But I do think when we're looking for help, I guess, or structural support from people, if we want people to be on the planning committee, we are always looking for different points of view. Um, and I think that really helps people who have worked with us for a long time are there, people who have just begun working with us. And so we know what it's like to access us and try to figure that out. People who are diverse in many ways right, in age, and ethnicity, in the style of work they're writing, whether they're academic or more community-based or have tr transition from to the other. I think that's really important. Um, people who are just readers and not writers. Um, and now, and we're, I think we're always asking each other who is, who is not yet at the table and how can we make that happen? Um, so one thing we're just talking about this year, I'm going to be meeting tomorrow with a few area teachers to talk about the possibility of adding a teacher tract to the fall literary festival is there, there's this wonderful festival at Youngstown State, an award-winning festival called the English Festival, where tens of thousands of regional middle and high school students read read books they contract to read books and they come in for a whole day at Youngstown State and meet with authors and have all different writing sessions and reading sessions it's quite amazing I've been really honored to lead a few sessions during that festival and so we are wondering is there a need an interest in keeping maybe riffing on that and talking to leading, you know, making a space for sessions on literature in the classroom, the writer teacher, right? The teacher writer, um, how can we support them? You know, English teachers are teaching everything. Is there, would they like support on how to teach poetry, how to teach, um, you know, things like that. So I think, that's one thing that that benefits us to the idea of keeping things humming smoothly I think when the few times when we've had conflict have been really difficult and painful and it's horrible to see 
to know that people you care about have been hurt. Um, and so to try and, and make a space for discussion, to make sure everyone feels heard, and to see if there's any way that we can correct course and moving forward, be better, um, try to prevent things from happening. And, um, and that, so that that's, I think, important to us as well, to make sure that people who work with us as much as we can to help that be a positive experience. Sure. Okay. Cool. And how, how has the group changed over the years? Because, I mean, you guys, Live Youngstown is fairly new. It's 20, you guys, the, the group was founded in 2015. Is that right? Yeah. It's gotten very big in a short amount of time. That's crazy. <laughs> so, what is What was that transformation like? Yeah, I um, I agree. I mean, it's been a really fun transformation, I think. I don't think we've lost too much in not being small anymore because some of our, we still have a space for small group interaction, um, like the writer circle. Um, but it's been really fun because more people have gotten involved. So we're having more ideas on the table and we've been able to collaborate with a lot of organizations in Youngstown. For example, we, um, we have a really wonderful organization called the Purple Cat for adults with disabilities. And early on, we went and read lunch poems with the Purple Cat clients. And they had worked with their, um, their teaching artists for a couple of months to write poems. And a lot of them came to the mic and read their poems. And somebody um, just said recently, hey, we need to do that again. So... I, I think that's been really fun. We've done some collaborations with the library where early on we had a desserts night and we helped and, and storytelling, most important storytelling. And we um, raised money for their children's library. And so most recently our collaboration with the Y has been with the women artists um, show. And we have been invited to bring ekphrastic work and to read work that responds to some of those pieces in the show. So I think I think all of those different community connections have been extremely fun and meaningful. So I just think the growth has been more, more cool things that we've been able to do. And also I think it's created a little bit more legitimacy when we want to write grants, we can say, well, we've done, we've done these things and development and community is important to us. We're not just an organization that's having writing workshops, but we're trying to, you know, during the pandemic, we wrote grants to, to purchase $14,000 worth of books for kids in our community because we realized, or we started thinking about how the pandemic was leaving them so isolated and that, you know, literacy enrichment might be something really meaningful. So we partnered with um, a local Head Start, and also, um, and so 760 of their kids got two books, and we partnered with a university program that pairs teachers, teacher education students with um, teachers in city schools, so that they're working directly with kids to help them pass their reading test and things like that, so they all got new books to keep as well, 
So I think just growing has just given us, because we are the only literary gig in, Young, in Youngstown, and because Youngstown is a community that has so much need, there's also so much fun stuff that we can do. <laughs> so I think that's my perception of, of the growth that it's just been, I don't know, Liz, my co-founder, she once described me as a terrier, that if you leave them alone at home, they start chewing up the furniture. <laughs> and I just, I just really like, you know, like I have all these ideas and I would just want to try them all. I think if the organization was, no, that's not what we're about. We have to, you know, we have to only do these things. It wouldn't be as fun for me, I think. But, um, but you know, organization has, hasn't been like that. Like, okay, this might not work, but let's try it. You know, for the mural, for example, we made a few false starts. The formula just wasn't quite right until we hit on the winning combination of community engagement and fundraising and artistic engagement. Um, so some things are admittedly, um, I'm a little bit in over my head with some specific details, right? But but we can learn and people help us. So I think that's that's been really fun personally. Very cool. Very cool. Well, I think that'll be a good natural segue. I'm going to introduce you, Karen, and I'm going to have you end us with a poem. Karen Schubert is the director and the co-founder of Lit Youngstown. She holds a BA in professional writing and editing and a master's in English from Youngstown State and an MFA in creative writing with an emphasis in poetry from the Northeast Ohio Master of Fine Arts. She is the author of The Compost Reader and five chapbooks, and her poetry, fiction, creative nonfiction reviews and interviews have been published in Agni Online, Diode, Apple Valley Review, American Literary Review, and many, many others. She's taught in numerous capacities, academic and community settings, and her awards include an Ohio Arts Council Individual Excellence Award and residency at the Headland Center for the Arts and the Vermont Studio Center. So Karen, could you please read us a poem? I'd be honored. Thank you. I'm going to read from my chapbook, um, Black Sand Beach, which um, I, is a full-length poem. I'm just going to read a little bit of it. And, um, you know, it, that, that reminded me of um, when Phil Grady reads, he always says, um, I'm, I'm just going to read one poem like Homer. <laughs> I, I was reading a few, a few sections um, of this. And we, um, so Headland Center for the Arts is this gorgeous former military installation from the 1800s. Um, right on the bay of, um, right around the corner from the, the beautiful bridge in San Francisco. And so we were on this gorgeous black, black sand beach. Um, it was, it was idyllic. I found that I could be so productive in a setting like that with no adult responsibilities. <laughs> I'm envious. <laughs> For a whole summer. It was an incredible yeah. gift. We scrambled down to a rocky cove watch the oyster catchers argue. One takes off low over the waves, screaming, comes back, circles the craggy island three times, lands beside the others. 
The sand is coarse, no castles. We stroke the warm layered chert, marble ribboned basalt. There are smooth rocks to pocket, bivalve shells, flesh colored claws, a small clear animal that's taken back in a wave. Claudia grew up in Maine. She sits on a wide stone, looking out past the lighthouse. Her notebook remembers everything. A cormorant raises its head and neck out of the water, half vulture, half beautiful, saturated body below. Later, it will stand on the outcrop, dry its elbowed wings in salt wind. River otters haven't been in the lagoon for years. The playful assassins pick off all the pelicans, slow to flight, then herons, egrets, ducks. When the birds are gone, the otters will move on. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. The, the whole book, the whole chat, the whole book is a uh, one long poem. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. <laughs> That's really cool. All right. Well, this has been Poetry Spotlight, a production of the Ohio Poetry Association. Please follow the OPA on Twitter at Ohio Poetry and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Ohio Poetry. A transcript of this episode can be found on the OPA blog. Visit ohiopoetryassociation.org for more information. And everyone, Pam, RW, Julio, Barbara, Karen, thank you all for coming and taking the time to do this today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.